Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Last year, we shared a mini-series called Crypto for Institutions to cover the basics of the rapidly evolving ecosystem from an investor's perspective. Through conversations with Eric Peters at One River, Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale, Seth Jins from CoinFund, and Ari Paul from BlockTower, we covered the case for Bitcoin, a path to access, investing beyond Bitcoin, and trading strategies. Over the next three weeks, we'll dive in a little deeper with Crypto for Institutions 2. This six-part miniseries explores where we are today in the rapidly evolving world of crypto and blockchains. We'll share conversations with the leading allocator to the space, four top managers, and a key service provider. The miniseries is strategic in nature, allowing us to learn without requiring technical lingo and expertise. For those interested in a more technical exploration, I'd encourage you to listen to Web3 with A16Z, Colossus's Web3 Breakdowns, and the Pump Podcast. Crypto for Institutions 2 is brought to you by Anchorage Digital. Anchorage Digital is the premier crypto partner for institutions. It offers custody, trading, financing, staking, governance, and the first federally chartered digital asset bank, all with unparalleled security. With support for a wide variety of digital assets, Anchorage is trusted by hedge funds, venture capital firms, banks, family offices, fintechs, treasuries, and asset managers. Learn more at anchorage.com slash cap. That's anchorage.com slash C-A-P. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on the second episode of Crypto for Institutions 2 is Stephen McKeon, a partner at Collab Currency and associate professor of finance at the University of Oregon, 
where he teaches a course on crypto assets. As an investor, Stephen focuses on consumer-facing applications of crypto. He was a past guest on the show back in 2018 discussing security tokens. That replay is available in the feed and sheds light on how far the crypto ecosystem has come over the last four years. Our conversation begins with a reflection on Steve's security token thesis, his shift to investing, and his strategy at Collab Currency. We dive into NFTs, DAOs, the metaverse, and gaming, including the latest state of play and his investment thesis around each. We then turn to important transitions to watch across interoperability, digital wallets, price volatility, and use cases for consumers. We close by discussing how interested folks can learn more by covering the syllabus of Steve's crypto course and the websites he encourages others to play around. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, why not reach out to that friend of yours? You know the one I'm talking about. There's someone you've known forever and trust and love so much. You probably only see each other maybe every year or two these days, but whenever you get together, it's like no time had passed at all. Go ahead, reach out to them and just say hi. When it comes up what inspired you to reach out, just tell them you thought of them while listening to the Capital Allocators podcast, and maybe they want to have a listen too. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Stephen McKeon in the second episode of Crypto for Institutions 2. Steve, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Ted. The last time you came on was a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018. It was early days of crypto. And we were talking about this thing that was coming called security tokens. Now, there's a lot that's happened in the last couple of years, though that maybe isn't the one that's the most popular. So I'd love to start with what you saw from that thesis and what's transpired since. Security tokens, just to define the term, this is the idea of bringing regulated assets on chain, so on a blockchain, things like stocks and bonds and private equity and whatnot. When I first encountered crypto, that's immediately where my mind went because I've been a finance professor for the last decade. I've been thinking about securities for a long, long time. This is a technology that really could transform how these things trade and how they move around and how they're custodied. That's what I was doing all the early writing on 2017, 2018, was this idea of there's all these new features that we can embed in securities if we can move them onto this new technological stack. The friction that we hit was primarily just the regulated piece of it. The technology continued to advance. And in fact, many of the things that I was talking about in that article, it was titled The Security Token Thesis, which talked about things like tenured voting and endowing access rights into the assets themselves and programmable value moving around. It sort of all happened. It just hasn't happened in the realm of regulated assets. There still is a security token industry. There's still lots of people working on bringing regulated assets on chain, but it's really been the fungible tokens, the network tokens, the NFTs, where we've actually seen most of the innovation and most of these features come to life. So that's what we've been spending our time on more recently. I know that when we first talked, you were a professor writing a paper and not long after you dove into an investment fund. I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition and then what your focus is within the crypto ecosystem. Back at the time we spoke, I've been teaching and researching crypto at University of Oregon. I've been a finance professor here for about the last decade. I had been informally advising a couple funds. The industry was very small back then. There was one or two funds over $100 million in the entire crypto space. 
an old friend of mine named Craig Shapiro, who founded Collaborative Fund, they had become known as a peer-to-peer investor in the context of Web2, firms like Lyft and TaskRabbit and Quora and Reddit, things that were facilitating peer-to-peer interaction. Crypto was a very easy extension of that thesis. So they started seeing more deal flows around Web3 and crypto. So he called me up and he said, we're looking for more bench strength, more domain expertise around crypto, and would you look at some deals with us? So we invested out of Collaborative's main fund for a couple years, 2017-2018 era. And by late 2018, it was clear this thing wasn't going away. It was only expanding, and it was expanding at an increased pace. Decided to spin up a separate fund that focused entirely on crypto, and it was called Collab Currency. So that's where the Collab came from. It was formed inside of Collaborative Fund. We operated inside of Collaborative Fund for another year or so, and by late 2019, early 2020, it was clear that we were going to trip up something called the venture exemption, because as a crypto fund, we invested both in equity and in tokens, as opposed to traditional venture funds, which are obviously primarily equity. So we ended up spinning Collab Currency out of Collaborative Fund to operate as an independent entity. Still lots of connective tissue. We use their offices in New York. We do weekly calls with them. But from an investment standpoint, we separated that function. We finished deploying Fund 1 and ended up raising Fund 2 in early 2021. The focus has been around this intersection of Web3 and consumer. That would be things like NFTs, DAOs, gaming assets, the metaverse, Where is the general public going to start intersecting with this technology? Those are the things that we focus on. Let's go through each one and start with NFTs. It's certainly a term we hear a lot about, collectibles and all that kind of stuff. But why don't you start with a good definition of an NFT? We think of an NFT as really just a file format for being able to bring a unique piece of digital content on-chain. Let's start with art and collectibles because you mentioned that and obviously that's been an early use case. When you think about traditional art, like a Picasso or a Miro or a Dali, what are people paying for when they pay 50 or 100 or $150 million for a painting? They're really buying the provenance. Many times collectors will have a replica produced to hang in their house. You may have heard the story about Steve Wynn and Picasso's La Rev, where there was a hole poked in it. So many times they'll put the real one, the original, in storage, keeping it safe, hang the replica. When they went to sell it, the replica wouldn't be worth $150 million, even if it looks identical. Only the original in storage would be worth $150 million. Why? Because that is the original that the artist produced. That's the one with provenance. The difference and really the big zero to one moment for digital art is that digital creators never had a mechanism to create provenance around a digital file. That's the thing that blockchains have enabled for them. They can now basically point to saying, This is the one, much like the original of a Picasso or the original of a Moreau is the one that the artist created, and that's the one that people will assign value to. Where we couldn't really assign value to a digital item before because we couldn't prove provenance, that friction has now been relieved by this technology, and that's been the wellspring for this new Renaissance era. We believe NFTs are going to be much larger than only art and collectibles. Because if you just look around the world and think about all of the things that are being digitized, my partner Derek often likes to say that we're in the middle of this transformation from a purely physical recording format to a purely digital recording format. That's only going to happen one time in human history, and it's happening right now. So as all of these things are digitized and all of these things move on chain, every mortgage is a unique contract, every employment contract is a unique contract. Every insurance policy is unique. 
most of the content we consume are on videos, are unique websites, are unique bank accounts, are unique. There's far more unique items in society than there are fungible items. As all of those things move on chain, those are all going to be wrapped as NFTs. We think there's a very plausible scenario where 99% of all crypto assets are NFTs in the longer run, especially as minting costs come down into the few cents or perhaps fraction of a cent. We're just going to see an explosion. So if we started with art and collectibles in this from nothing to 99% of all non-fungible assets can be on chain in the form of NFTs, what are the next obvious use cases that aren't there today in NFTs? One that's emerging are access rights. This is something I originally talked about in the context of securities. Let's say you own shares in Chevron and you own shares in Ford and you pull up to the Chevron in your Ford F-250 or whatever. It would recognize that you own these things and it would maybe unlock a discount at the pump. So the idea of the things that you own unlocking something could be a discount, could be access to a website, it could be whatever. That's actually starting to happen with NFTs, basically being used as digital key cards to the internet. We have a company in our portfolio called Lit Protocol, which is facilitating this where it's not only what you own, but also actions you've taken. So if you participated in this DeFi protocol and you minted this NFT, that gives you access to a 15% discount at this Shopify store, that sort of scenario. That's not really visual in nature the way a piece of art would be. But again, just because this is this unique digital item, it could represent anything. It could represent a subscription to the New York Times for 2022, where instead of paying a monthly fee, I buy this token as long as it's sitting in my wallet. When I go to the New York Times and just click connect, it immediately authenticates me into that site where we used to use usernames and passwords. Usernames or passwords are not a great way to do access control. As we know, Netflix usernames and passwords get shared among family members. They get stolen. You can go on the dark web and buy billions of username password combos. We know we're going to move past this. And we think that tokens and token gated access control might be one of the mechanisms, which would be the next generation of authenticating into sites. One of the things that's really confusing from the outside about NFTs are just how expensive these tokens are. It just doesn't feel like it's grounded in any fundamental activity or comparable assets. How do you think about TakeBoard Apes as an example of why these things are trading at such lofty prices? Board Apes and a lot of the other what we call PFP projects, so profile picture projects, I think the right way to think about them is that they are effectively placeholders to be able to bootstrap a community, and in the long run, will be much more than a picture of an ape. The amazing thing about tokens is once they are in your wallet, you can push all kinds of additional products and services to the holder of that asset, because you know you can immediately have full visibility into all the wallets in the world that hold this specific asset. So in the case of Yuga Labs, which is the producer of Bored Apes, the first thing they did was they said, now you can mint a new asset called a mutant ape. They airdropped these little tokens that were called serums, and you could feed it to your ape, and now you had a new asset. That expanded the community. And then they said, now we're going to create a currency for use inside of our ecosystems called the ape token or ape coin. This just happened over the past month, and they were able to push that out to everybody who had this asset in their wallet. They're starting to link up with gaming studios, and they're going to produce all kinds of content. There's going to be a movie. 
you could see Yuga basically becoming a Web3 version of Disney. And all of it is going to trace back to these holders of the original Board Ape pictures. So yes, it is a picture. And you say, how could somebody pay $100,000 or $300,000 or $300, for the picture? But it's really more like a membership pass into this very broad ecosystem. It's 10000 which sounds like a lot. It's really not a lot relative to the general public. There's 300 million users that have a crypto exchange account at this point. There's 5 billion internet-connected humans on the planet. These are actually very small numbers. So the real question is, how do we go from 10,000 to 100,000 to a million in terms of expanding these communities? And Bored Apes are just the first iteration of this longer game plan. When you think about investing in this space, there's the possibility of effectively an infinite number of NFTs and tools around it. So how have you approached investing in NFTs? Our fund historically has not taken a lot of direct NFT exposure in terms of the underlying, but we are perhaps the most active investor in the world in NFT-related platforms. One of the things we're always looking for is, is this thing capturing attention? If you look at some of the biggest companies in the economy, Facebook, Google, Netflix, these are not financial firms. These are firms that specialize in attention. We're thinking about it much in the same way. When you're analyzing a DeFi protocol, you're thinking about it in the context of a financial firm, like how much trading might happen here, how much lending might happen here. When you're analyzing things around NFTs, which are purely a consumer product, people think of crypto as fintech. We really view it as a social technology. We think that actually the biggest use cases in crypto are not going to be purely financial in nature. They're actually going to be things that map the social graph. That's the gap that NFTs have fit into. To use a couple examples, we led a seed round for a project called Artblocks. Artblocks is the leading marketplace for generative art. The amazing thing about marketplaces in Web3 is not only do they get the revenues from the primary sale, but every time that asset is sold in the secondary market, there is a royalty stream that comes back not only to the artist, but also to the original platform of where they meant it, like in the case of Artblocks. This is true of many of the marketplaces we've invested in. It's a whole new type of economic model around marketplaces relative to a Web2 marketplace like eBay, where maybe there's a cut on the sale, but then it's over after that. It's created some really powerful economic tailwinds for these platforms. We're looking ideally for, is this thing utilizing some feature that can be delivered through crypto and Web3 that couldn't be delivered through Web2? Those are the things that are most exciting for us. When these platforms have the ability to be effectively repeat toll collectors, how do they differentiate from each other? You could imagine lots and lots of people wanting to have one of those platforms. Absolutely. And lots of these platforms have sprung up. This is where it comes back to something that way predates Web3, which is brand. This concept of trusted brands and brands that have done a really good job of curating and making sure that the quality of things that are produced on their site are of the highest quality and things that people want. OpenSea, of course, is an open marketplace, so there's not curation on OpenSea. Something like 90% or maybe more than 90% of collections on OpenSea have never had a single trade. This relatively small sliver of things that actually have value, this is a point we're always making to people. Taking an item and wrapping it in an NFT does not inherently make it value. There's nothing valuable about the file format inherently, other than you now can prove provenance, but of course it has to be something that people want. 
seems obvious, but there seems to be this misconception sometimes that just because it's wrapped as an NFT, this now connotes some value, which is just not true. The vast majority of collections don't trade. And the vast majority of items are probably going to go to zero. You really do have to cut through the noise to find these platforms and these teams that are really driving value back to the users. Once we started specializing on this intersection of Web3 and consumer, it became much easier for us to separate out the wheat from the chaff and figure out what are the right ingredients that you need to create a platform of lasting value. What are those ingredients or those aspects of what it takes to build a brand? In the case of marketplaces, tight curation seems to be one of the ingredients. It goes back to things we look at in traditional ventures as well, which is just the team itself. Does the team have a background and have experience? And do they have the technical chops to actually bring this thing to market? But the one thing that's unique about Web3 is this concept of community. You have to be able to build a community around whatever platform you're creating. It has to be something that people are drawn to and that they want to engage with. Coming back to this concept of attention, what is it about this thing that is going to capture people's attention? That could be generative art. It could be video. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to capture people's attention because that is the scarce resource. So let's turn over to DAOs and go through it the same way. Start with a simple definition. The acronym refers to Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is sort of a mouthful. An analogy would be an LLC that lives in the cloud, or some people would say a subreddit with a bank account. All these analogies floating around, but that's the sandbox we're playing in. It's an organizational form, much like a C-Corp or an S-Corp or an LLC, but while those organizational forms are legal organizations bound by jurisdictions in which they're created, DAOs are created exclusively on the internet. So we think of them as the organizational form that's native to the internet. There's three features that are common to virtually every DAO. One is some sort of shared treasury, which is usually held in the form of a smart contract. The second is some sort of governance mechanism. So this would include a mechanism to create proposals, a mechanism to vote on those proposals, and then a mechanism to execute those proposals. And then the last feature is free entry and exit. So lots of the public DAOs, you can join them by buying tokens, you can exit them by selling your tokens. What sorts of things might these be useful for? Let me give you an example. So I wrote an article called The Future of Work, which walked through this, but I'll just do a quick synopsis. I joined a DAO called Flamingo, as did my partner Derek, and as did about 60 other people. This was one of the early DAOs, and it was created with a singular purpose, which is let's go out and buy some NFTs. There were certain NFTs like CryptoPunks, which were getting into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we thought individually, I maybe can't spend that much, but if we pool capital among a bunch of us, maybe we could go out and get some of these so-called grails, very rare NFTs. So we created a DAO called Flamingo. It's managed by a group called Tribute Labs, which does all the administration. Everybody sent in ETH, Ethereum. It's a token. We all sent it into a smart contract. Now, here's the interesting thing. We didn't know each other, but we weren't worried about sending it into the smart contract because we knew it can't exit the smart contract without a majority vote of the members. So if you think about what do DAOs relax relative to a traditional organization, it's trust production and it's coordination. So if you think about a C-Corp with a million shareholders, just to execute a shareholder vote, they have to go out, they have to hire Broadridge, it costs millions of dollars, there's all this mailing and 
it's this massive coordination exercise. When we do a vote in our DAOs, it takes 30 seconds. I basically go in, I have my digital wallet, which proves that I am the one that is a member of this DAO. I click a few buttons, I vote on the proposal, and it's done. The coordination around governance and voting mechanisms has been collapsed to almost nothing when you're using these digital environments with provable ownership. The other interesting thing is that because the assets are held in a smart contract, the way the code is written is that there must be a majority vote in order to have any money leave that contract. It allows participants that don't know each other in advance to pool resources towards a common cause. Those are the things that are revolutionary about DAOs. There's this trust production around capital formation and coordination around voting. So every time there's a new evolution in this, there's probably almost an equal number of people trying to figure out how to game it and steal from it. What are some of the mechanisms that you've seen of people trying to figure out how do you manipulate a DAO? There's not a lot of examples of that. If the smart contracts are not written well and a hacker gets in and exploits it, they could conceivably take the capital that's inside there. There are a few examples of that. In fact, the very first DAO, which was called The DAO, several years ago, it suffered from this. There was an exploit shortly after it was launched. If the smart contracts are battle-tested and they're sort of unexploitable, if anything, there's the opposite problem, which is because it requires consensus, it's actually hard to get the money out of these smart contracts because you've got to get everybody to agree that it's a good idea to spend money on this thing or to invest in this project or whatever the proposal is. So we've definitely seen with some of the big DAOs that have many thousands of members, there's a little bit of gridlock going on where in fact the treasury is massive and it's just not getting spent because there's not enough consensus around the things that are being proposed. So if anything, I would say the biggest challenges around DAOs today are not that people are absconding with the money, but in fact that the money is not being spent quickly enough. The Lao and Flamingo are smaller DAOs. They're, as I said, about 60 members. They've been very good and very efficient at deploying capital. We need to take some of the things we've learned in these small DAOs and see how we can extrapolate them to governance systems within these larger DAOs. What's the mechanism by which if you own a token in a DAO, you get the proposal sent to you? compared to how difficult it is to get people to vote on proxies of equities? Typically, these things are executed online, so it's less of a push and more of a pull. There's usually some mechanism through which communications happen. I would say for most DAOs, that actually happens to be Discord. In Discord, there would be a variety of channels, which is where you reach what we call soft consensus. Let's say somebody sees a protocol, they say, this is exciting, we should invest in this. They'll open up a channel and people will start talking about it, like debating it. Like, here's what I like about it. Here's what I don't like about it. Let's set up a call with the team. Anybody from the DAO is welcome to join that call. A very typical process that a VC fund would go through. There's a vetting process. Once you've reached soft consensus inside of the messaging channel, inside of Discord, it then moves to what's called hard consensus. It looks like there's support for this thing. Let's put a formal proposal on chain, and this is where you have to go in with your wallet and vote. Usually there's rules around what constitutes a quorum, 30% or 50% of all the members must vote, and a majority or a supermajority of them must vote in favor, depending on the type of proposal. Wallet-to-wallet -wallet messaging is still one of the big unsolved things in crypto. The reason it's hard is because as soon as you open up wallet-to-wallet -wallet messaging, you get massive amounts of spam. Just like the early days in the internet, 
The internet was a scary place. You had an email address. Probably most of us got our first email addresses in the mid 90s and you would get all kinds of crap in there and there weren't very good spam filters. Kind of the same thing with crypto right now. So there's a lot of solutions to wallet to wallet messaging where we could push a notification, but we don't have the tools yet to prevent spam. That's one of the big challenges there. So in the DAO space, how have you thought about what makes attractive investments? It's the same way a VC fund thinks about what makes attractive investments. First of all, there's many different types of DAOs. So much like an NFT is just a wrapper for a unique digital item, a DAO is just a wrapper for some sort of human organization. Much like an LLC could be used for anything. You could use an LLC to produce widgets. You could use an LLC to manage a private school. We've seen charitable DAOs where they would run a foundation. We've seen service DAOs where maybe they focus on marketing or they focus on legal advice or they focus on different sorts of service activities. The ones we've been talking about are investment DAOs. And those really mimic a venture capital fund. And in fact, we think will displace a portion of venture capital over time. It's already started. And the way they would make a decision is much in the same way that a VC would make a decision. So instead of having a small team that's out there sourcing deals, you've got all 60 people out there sourcing deals. So people source deals, they post them into this message channel on Discord, and then there's a debate. There's an internal debate, there's a call with a team, there's a diligence process, everything that you would do in a traditional investment shop. The only difference is with a bigger group of, say, 60 people, you've got lots of different skill sets and capabilities. You've got people that focus on marketing. You've got lawyers in there. You've got traditional investors in there. Everybody's bringing a different piece. You've got a lot of resources to help these companies and also different lenses through which to think about the investment itself. I would say most DAOs have some sort of specialty. Red DAO only focuses on metaverse fashion and accessories and wearables, digital fashion. Neon DAO only focuses on metaverse assets, so land and avatars and things like that. Flamingo only focuses on NFTs broadly. Noise DAO only focuses on music NFTs and everything that's happening around music and bringing that sort of content on chain. In each of these cases, you bring specialists, some people in industry that are experts in that specific thesis, in addition to investors and, like I said, lawyers and various other people. And collectively, you form this DAO, and then you go off about deploying the capital into that thesis. So if you're a venture firm investing in a DAO that's then investing in one of these specialties, how is it that DAOs could replace some subset of venture firms? When you talk to founders, many times they prefer to take capital from DAOs as opposed to traditional venture firms. Some of that is ethos. DAOs are very community-driven. Web3 space broadly is very community-driven. DAOs aren't going to come in and try to take 90% of the round and exert a bunch of control provisions and whatnot. The other thing is you're kind of getting 60 people instead of, say, one partner. Our argument is that it kind of goes both ways. Because you get 60 people, but maybe there isn't any one person individually that's as incentivized as, say, a partner at a venture fund to create connections, create value. So many of the rounds that we're seeing have both. You've got some traditional venture firms, and then you've got one or more DAOs that are also inserting capital. But what we're seeing is that it's 
only value add capital that's getting into these deals at this point. So what the founders don't want is just capital. The world is awash in capital right now, Web3 more so maybe than any other segment. Whether it's a DAO or whether it's a venture investor, they want somebody that's an expert in the specific type of platform that they're trying to bring to market. And with DAOs, you just get a much bigger network. That is the attraction of taking capital from DAOs. How does the DAO go about sourcing the entrepreneur? And then similarly, how does the entrepreneur figure out who is in the DAO that will be helping them after an investment gets made? In terms of sourcing, a lot of it is much the way it works in VC. Like if you have a very strong brand as a venture investor, you're going to get a lot of inbound. You're going to get inbound cold. You're going to get it from founders you've invested in previously. You're going to get it from co-investors. For example, many times when we lead a deal, we are very active in the NFT space. We'll actively seek to bring Flamingo and Neon and some of these other DAOs in because we know the value that they can provide. The DAO might be brought into a deal through a variety of different mechanisms, but many of them mimic the same way the traditional venture shop would be brought into a deal. Now, in terms of who they'll be working with, usually different people from the DAO will engage. If it's a music platform, you might get some artists engaging and they'll join a call with a founder. In a venture deal, you might have a call with, say, one partner and maybe an analyst. If you're taking money from a DAO, you'll set up a call with the DAO and you might get five or 10 or 15 people from the DAO that join that call. Those are typically going to be the ones that are most interested and most engaged as you move forward. Again, there's sort of this administrator called Tribute Labs. They're doing a lot of the signing paperwork and things that the DAO may have to do to actually execute the investment. Tribute Labs is run by Aaron Wright and Priyanka. And Aaron and Pri would be like your main point of contact if you're a founder. So you would reach out to Aaron and Pri and you would say like, I need an expert in tokenomics. And then Aaron and Pri would come to the DAO and say, this portfolio company we invested in needs somebody to help them think through token allocation. A couple of people would raise their hands and they would be connected. And that's how it works. You mentioned metaverse a couple of times in talking about DAO. So why don't we turn to your perspectives on the metaverse? One of the ways we think about it is that we already are sort of living in a metaverse. We're already engaging in these immersive digital environments. You and I right now are interacting via video, and we have been for some time accelerated by COVID. What you hear about is the metaverse from NVIDIA and Facebook and obviously all the activity that's happening within Web3 is really just an extension of the world we're already living in, where we're already primarily interacting in these digital environments. The big difference with the way most people in crypto think about the metaverse is that the digital environments we interact in today are wholly owned by corporations and by particular platforms, whereas the metaverse that we envision in the future is more like the real world, where the real estate is owned by the participants, the characters are owned by the participants, Take Axie Infinity, which is a company we've invested in. If you think about their game, the players own the board, the players own the characters, the players own the ability to breed new characters, the users own the entire ecosystem. That's one of the big things that'll be different about what we're referring to as the metaverse going forward. But the idea of people spending time in immersive digital environments, it's already here. It's just sort of an evolution of Roblox and Minecraft and all of these gaming ecosystems that we've seen spring up over decades. When we were talking about security tokens, one of the use cases we talked about was the tokenization of a real estate property. And now in the metaverse, we have this virtual land. 
if you could talk a little bit about what that virtual land is and why it has value today. There's a couple different formats for digital land. Let me start with what we call a fixed map metaverse. Decentraland and Sandbox, and there's a bunch of metaverses that would fit this description where you can pull up the whole map on the screen and there's like 50,000 little individual squares. The value of those things are sort of the same thing that drives value of traditional real estate. Like what do the realtors always say? Location, location, location. If you have a plot of land very close to the center, which is where all players spawn when they come into the metaverse, you're going to get a tremendous amount of traffic. Same way we think about websites. What makes a particular website valuable? How much traffic is being driven to it? It all comes back to attention, as we were talking about earlier. With fixed plot land, location is critical because the pieces don't move around. It's fixed, as the name implies. If you're very close to a spawn point, that has value. Maybe you have a plot of land, just like regular real estate. If you have mineral rights and you're on top of an oil field, that's got value. Same thing in the metaverse. Your piece of land might have resources that generate on it in a gaming environment. That's going to create more value for it. Maybe you've got districts. There's a district in Decentraland called the Arts District, where lots of big collectors of NFTs have created museums, and it gets more traffic because people want to walk around and look at the museums. If you own a plot inside of there, it's going to have more value than if you're out at the edge. When you think about fixed map metaverses, a lot of it is the same dynamics that drive value for traditional real estate. Obviously, everything is purely and natively digital. But there is a different version of the metaverse that we think is really fascinating and compelling. A good example would be Mona Gallery. If you want to take a look at this, it's just mona.gallery. What these are are immersive digital environments, each of which is unique. They're not on a fixed map. They can be stitched together where you might be able to choose your neighbors. This is probably the way the metaverse looks because a fixed map is very skeuomorphic, as they say. It's kind of like if we were to imagine regular real estate in a digital environment, it would look like a fixed map. But this is cyberspace. There's no reason we need to be constrained on the number of plots. There can be an infinite number of plots, just like there can be an infinite number of websites. Anybody who wants to create one can create one, but that website's only going to be valuable if people want to come there. Maybe they want to come there to play a game. Maybe they want to come there to consume content. Maybe they want to come there for whatever reason. It's the reason that somebody's personal webpage that gets a few hits a day is not very valuable, and Google.com is obviously enormously valuable. We think it's actually going to play out the same way in the metaverse, and it's going to look something like Mona, where there's an infinite number. And the other thing is that there's really no restrictions on what they look like. One of the amazing things about Mona is it allows designers to create any type of environment they want with the tools they're already using. We're seeing all of these experienced game designers and website designers, people that already have skills creating digital environments, coming into Mona, creating a new environment. You then mint that thing as an NFT, so it's ownable. And then what will eventually happen is these things will be stitched together so that I'm right now in my plot and maybe there's a game on there and I can walk through this door to the right and now I'm in a concert venue and somebody else owns that concert venue. And you can walk through another door and you're in a museum with lots of art hanging on the walls. It's been fascinating to watch this thing take off. It's very early, but we believe in this concept of an open metaverse where there isn't actually scarcity attached to individual plots. How do you think about the accretion of value if there's no scarcity? Just like I think about accretion of value of a website, 
have you built something that is compelling and that people want to go to and spend time in? It could take many forms. I think a lot of these will be games. We think of a metaverse as a base layer. So it's a layer upon which many other things will be built. You can go into the metaverse and you can play a game. You'll probably be able to go into the metaverse and trade stocks. You'll probably be able to go into the metaverse and watch a concert. All these different things you might be able to do inside of this base layer digital environment. Those are the things that will actually create value. People to want to go into the environment and participate in whatever the creator has created in that particular space. Let's turn to games. We hear a lot about Axie Infinity. What's happening in the world of Web3 games? There's been an explosion in activity is really the only way to describe it. Axie was the pioneer here. We invested in Axie when they had 15 or 20,000 users probably. One of the problems back then was that they were on the main chain. They were on Ethereum where the transaction fees are very high. Transaction fees could be 10 or 20 or 50 or $100 if the network is very congested, which is problematic. This idea of play to earn is one of the big themes in Web3 Gaming. If you're earning $20 a day, but you're spending $30 in a transaction fee to extract that value, the math doesn't work super well. The big thesis on Axie when we invested was that they were building a separate chain called Ronin. It's a side chain to Ethereum. There's already 15 or 20,000 users. If they can port this thing into a no-fee environment or very low fee where it's pennies, this thing could explode. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. So they ported it over to Ronin. Users went to 50,000 and 400,000 and a million and 2 million. And so the thing just took off. At that point, it really captured the attention of game producers and game developers. Now we've seen an explosion of activity. What we haven't seen is most of this stuff landing on Ethereum main chain. It's landing on Polygon, which is a layer two on Ethereum. It's landing on Avalanche, which is an EVM compatible chain with very low fees. It's landing on Solana, which is a different chain with very low fees. All the activity is happening in these low fee environments because you need fast and cheap to make the game use case work. What we're seeing is it's migrating to those environments. In the gaming ecosystem, where have you been most excited about investing? Things that look more like platforms than individual games. The interesting thing about Axie is it started out as a singular game, but because people own the characters and because people own the board, you can repurpose these assets into new games. This has really never been possible in gaming before. Let's say I have my little Axies and I'm playing the Axie game, but somebody else decides I want to bootstrap my game with the Axie community. So they build a totally different game. So Axie is a battle game. It's sort of like Pokemon. Maybe somebody else builds a racing game. Now I can take my same character, my same Axie, and I can jump over to their game and I can play it in there. And even more interestingly, Maybe axes that are really average in the first game are amazing in the racing game. You could assign different powers or attributes to different features of some of these gaming assets. All of a sudden, you get this interoperability for the assets across multiple games, potentially from multiple different game developers. That's one of the fascinating things about building games in these environments. So that's a feature that we often look for. Can whatever's being built morph into something that's bigger than a singular game? I hear a lot about the challenge of interoperability. You have a whole bunch of layer one protocols. You have even more layer two protocols. People are competing to be the most trafficked base layer game. 
How do you get from that to interoperability and describe what interoperability is? Interoperability is defined as the ability of one computer to use information from another computer, one piece of software to use information from another piece of software. It's something we haven't had with most databases today. Databases we think of as siloed. It's why we need these big systems of intermediation between, say, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. We have to send payments up through the correspondent banking system or the Federal Reserve because Wells Fargo has their ledger and Bank of America has their ledger and those ledgers don't talk to each other. They're only interoperable through this system of intermediation. But it's not just true finance. Most data does not play very well with most other data. It's not composable, which is the biggest unlock in Web3. The fact that now we have these trust-minimized databases and ledgers that can talk to each other. The challenge is that right now they talk to each other within each ecosystem, but not across ecosystems. All the things inside of Ethereum are composable. So I can use this lending protocol, and then I can use my receipt from having done that lending in this trading protocol. And everything just works together because it's all, say, ERC-20 standards. There are these standards that exist in the ecosystem that makes everything interoperable and work together. What's been more difficult to do is to take my token from Ethereum and now use it on Solana. Solana is a different chain, not necessarily interoperable with Ethereum. The initial solution to this were bridges. Create a bridge between Solana and Ethereum so I can take my token, I can insert it in the bridge, I'll use a US dollar. USDC is a token that represents $1. Let's say I have some USDC on Ethereum and I want to use it on Solana. I take those tokens, I put them in the bridge. What the bridge does is it locks up those tokens on Ethereum and then it spits out an equal number of tokens on Solana. We've now moved across this bridge and now I have my tokens on Solana and I can go do whatever I want, trading or lending or whatever use I have for it over on that ecosystem. The problem is the number of bridges that are required as the number of ecosystems expands becomes exponential. One new ecosystem now has to bridge to every existing ecosystem. What we think is that interoperability is going to look more like a fabric. We have a, an investment in a company called Axler that's working on this sort of solution. If you think about the internet itself, the internet is really a network of networks. You and I might actually be on separate networks. We have separate ISPs. But in fact, the reason that this video works between us is because of overlay networks, specifically Akamai. It might go from our network to an Akamai node, which is this overlay network across tens or hundreds or thousands of individual networks. And it's the reason everything works together and content can be pushed between two different networks. We think something similar will happen in Web3, where something like Axler is an overlay network on top of all of these sub-ecosystems. From the user's perspective, it's totally transparent. At the end of the day, users aren't going to care. When we think about moving this technology from 300 million users, maybe now to a couple billion users, people are not going to want to be thinking about all the specific features. Much like I don't want to think about the underlying tech stack in most of the websites I used. I just know if I hit send on my email, I want it to get to the other person. Same thing is going to be true in crypto. Users are going to want most of that stuff abstracted away. So it's going to be important for these overlay networks to step in, bridge all these ecosystems so that we really do get to the grand vision of one giant interoperable system of ledgers for all value and records. Where are we today in the development of the bridges to interoperability? 
Axler is live. We're much further along than we were two or three years ago. I would also characterize it as relatively early because now a lot of the apps are going to need to integrate with these interoperability solutions. It's really not a question of if anymore. It is a question of when, what that adoption cycle looks like. The same thing is true of digital wallets. We remember a time when nobody had an email address. All through high school, nobody had an email address. In the mid-90s is when everybody got their first email address. 94, 95, that era is when we went from a few people were really into it, had email addresses, but general public didn't have email addresses until Hotmail and AOL started taking hold. I graduated high school in 1995. I got my first email address as a senior in high school. So I went from nobody had an email address. And if you just fast forward about 10 years to say 2005, everybody had an email address. It was very odd not to have an email address. How are you going to receive messages electronically if you don't have an email address? We're seeing the same thing right now with digital wallets. I was just having this conversation with one of my classes during winter term. I've been teaching this class on crypto for five years. And every year I ask them, how many of you have Web3 digital wallets? So not a Coinbase account or an FDX account or a Binance account, something like MetaMask or Rainbow, something where you can connect to a decentralized application. First year, zero. Second year, zero. This was like 2018, 2019. 2020, a few. And this last year, 30% of the class on day one, before we'd started any of the content, already had a digital wallet. And what I realized is that digital wallets are going to be for their generation what email addresses were for our generation. They're going to watch society go from nobody has a digital wallet to everybody has a digital wallet. I don't know if it's five years or nine years or 13 years, but I do know that our North Star at the fund is that everybody is going to have a digital wallet. They are going to be as ubiquitous as email addresses. It's going to be the way you receive your paycheck. It's going to be the way you pay for your groceries at the store. Value flows are going to move on to these systems. When we did the last podcast in 2018, I would say there was still a lot of question as to whether something like that might manifest. Today, that feels unassailable. My partner, Derek, always says that genie is not going back in the bottle. Now that we have these trust-minimized ledgers, we're not going back to siloed databases. It's just not happening. Just like once we had the personal computer, we're not going back to typewriters. This has been a technological state change. Really, it's just a question of what does the adoption cycle look like? That's why we're so excited about it. So in that path to adoption, obviously, there's been a lot of volatility in crypto asset prices led by Bitcoin, Ethereum, and everything down the line. You could look back and say 2017 was the last really terrible crypto winter and money had been raised, but it was quiet for a few years. What's happening now where over the last bunch of months we have had another sell-off in crypto assets? Let me just first comment on the volatility broadly. It's interesting because crypto's always been volatile, but the further out we go, the less volatile those early periods look like. It is possible that what looks like volatility to us, again, in this era, when we scan out five or 10 more years, looks like nothing because the space just continues to grow. We're so early. 1.5 million people total ever in the world have ever executed a transaction for an NFT on OpenSea. Maybe four or five million have ever interacted with a DeFi protocol. Even if you count all exchange wallets, it's maybe 300 million. There's 5 billion internet-connected people on Earth. There's a long way for this thing to grow still. 
I do think the volatility that looks like shocking double-digit percentage movements in these asset prices today will eventually look like blips. At least that's been the pattern over several decades. But let me address your question more directly in terms of what's happened over the last few months. Now, having been in the space for a while, we've seen this multiple times. We saw it in 2013. There was this big blow off top. It retraced. We saw it in 2017. There was this big blow off top. It retraced. We had a big run up last year. But what we had was this huge influx of new activity, specifically around NFTs. Anytime you get into one of those hype cycles, first of all, hype is not a bad thing. Hype is what brings lots of new users into the space. But you always get this overheated period. All of this stuff, to some degree, has some macro correlation. If you look back over time, these are basically treated as risk on assets. When the stock market is going up, crypto is usually going up a lot. Stock market is retracing. Crypto tends to pull back as well. Out of all the things in crypto, NFTs are probably the most uncorrelated with things like the S&P 500 because they're really more like a consumer product. NFTs are the purest form of e-commerce ever conceived. My friend Kai Sheffield used that phrase, who's the head of crypto at Visa. There's no supply chain. There's no logistics. It's literally straight from the creator to the consumer. When you think about value accrual in those systems, they look less like the S&P 500 and more like product markets as opposed to financial markets. Some combination of a tremendous amount of attention and overheating in the space that happened really during fourth quarter last year, along with asset prices of virtually all assets pulling back over the last few months, put some pressure on crypto prices as well. 300 million people out of 5 billion, so call it 6% of the population is engaged in this. How will Web3 in the near term affect the general public? If you think about like, why did most people open their Coinbase account or open their FTX account or open their Binance account? It's really about trading. People wanted to make money. The same reason they opened their Schwab account or E-Trade account. But this was especially prevalent in that 2017-18 era. People were opening Coinbase accounts because they thought, I want exposure to these assets. I want to trade these assets. I want to get rich. There was very much a trading mentality around crypto. And there sort of always has been for many years. The big difference over the last 12 to 18 months, NFTs are the ones that caused this paradigm shift. The mentality went from trading to using. That's a really important shift that probably most people who are outside the industry haven't fully grasped. The reason you're owning these NFTs is because you want entry into a Discord, you want entry into a DAO, join a community, access some sort of video content. I had to buy an NFT yesterday for VCon. VCon is a big conference that's happening in Minneapolis in a few weeks. The tickets are NFTs. That's why I bought the NFT, not because I'm going to trade it, because I got to show this thing at the door to get in. This mentality around let's use these assets is really, really important. It takes it out of purely speculative trading, I think the number is going to go up type of mentality, which appeals to a certain subset of society. But the idea of using these things to join a community and to perform certain actions and to get access to certain things is something that's going to touch a much wider swath of society. So if I say, how do we go from 300 million to 5 billion? I think it's going to be more through these use cases that revolve around access and usage more than it's going to be trading. There's always going to be a market to trade these things as well. But this migration towards actually using them is really cool to see. And I would say that's the thing that's got us most excited. 
I was going to ask you if someone wanted to start to dive in and learn more, where would they go? But maybe a better question is, what's on your syllabus? So this is my last year at the university. I don't have time to do it in addition to the fund anymore. So I actually met with the dean office a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I would like to continue providing this content to the students because after I leave, I'm not sure if there's anyone else that's going to teach crypto. And they said, why don't we produce a series of really professional videos? And so we're going to do that over this summer. Maybe we can make it available to more than just our students and actually make it publicly available because there does seem to be a thirst for learning the basics, like what is a blockchain? What is Bitcoin? What's the history? What is DeFi? What is an NFT? Those are the things on my syllabus. I start from the assumption of no knowledge. We start with what is a blockchain? And I don't dive really deeply into the technical aspects. I dive more deeply into what are the applications? What is it? But also, why is it important? Why is it going to touch all these different segments of society from finance to music to art to human organization? We talk about what are the challenges around Web3, whether it be regulatory, energy consumption, all the various things that people might point to as challenges. We cover the regulatory and legal environment, like are these things securities? What are securities? What might not be securities? Different jurisdictions around the world, how are they treating crypto? We do definitions like what is an NFT? We spend a whole day on NFTs. We do what is a DAO? We spend a whole day on DAOs. That's the syllabus for the course. The most important session, which is the last session of the class, is called Wallet Workday. So when I was first going down the rabbit hole, there was a guy named Chris Berniski, and he was at ARC with Kathy Wood, and he was writing a book called Crypto Assets. I was introduced to him, and we did some calls, and he said, the most important thing you can do is start using this stuff. He said, just take a few hundred bucks, put it in a wallet, get some Bitcoin and Ethereum, and try out some of these ICOs. Act like you've lost the money, so you're not worried about earning a return. Just try it. So I decided I was going to take my whole student class, so 60 students through the same experience. I said, everybody has to go get a MetaMask wallet. We're going to execute a trade on Uniswap. We're going to mint an NFT. We're going to vote on a DAO proposal. It hits you how powerful this stuff is. It's like, wow, I just executed a trade and there was no counterparty on the other side. That's revolutionary relative to the way markets have worked for hundreds of years. But it's not until you actually have the wallet and you actually try this stuff out. I'll point your listeners towards a couple websites. So there's one called FWeb3. I think it's fweb3.xyz. It was created by a guy named Sahil, the founder of Gumroad. Consider it like a practice zone for crypto. So it uses Matic, which is a very low-fee environment. He created a play token called the FWeb3 token. And so you can get some of these tokens and you can try a trade and try minting an NFT. And it's got a series of lessons you go through. The other one, once you have a wallet and you're a little bit more comfortable, you can go to a website called Rabbit Hole, rabbithole.gg. It's got a whole series of quests where you can try lending and you can try trading and you can actually earn tokens in order to learn about all these different protocols. It's like a form of user acquisition. If you're Compound or Uniswap or one of these big protocols, you actually are interested in people trying out your platform. Rabbit Hole is a place where they can come, do a quest, and then once you've successfully performed the task, A, you've learned something, B, you might have earned some tokens in the process. That's the number one thing I tell people is get the basics, but then go try using it. That's where you really see the power. Well, Stephen, I can't let you go without asking a few updated closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? And I suppose that also means outside of crypto. 
that was an important qualifier at the end. <laughs> My favorite thing to do when I'm not vetting deals or doing stuff specific to the fund is play with this stuff. Like if you talk to most crypto fund managers, it's why they got into it initially. Most of us didn't anticipate becoming fund managers. We got into it because we love tinkering. We love playing with the newest DeFi protocol or minting an NFT and seeing what access rights it gives us in the metaverse is how we spend our spare time is playing around. But if I have to choose something outside of crypto, I live on a small family farm. So I've got a tractor and all the toys you can attach to it. That's where I spend time when I'm not messing around with the newest DeFi protocol. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is unreliability. It is the one thing I cannot tolerate in employees or people I'm working with, really anybody that I'm interacting with. I want to know that if we talk and we agree on something, you're going to do it. Where you don't have that faith, now you have to spend more cognitive load thinking about, did they actually do the thing we talked about? That's my biggest pet peeve by far. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I think an ongoing mistake many of us are guilty of, not stopping to celebrate the wins. For people that are really driven and really busy and really oriented towards achievement, you're working so hard towards something and then you achieve it and it's immediately on to the next thing and you don't stop to reflect to say that was a real accomplishment. Whether it be a big outcome for the fund or closing a new fund or something personal like with your kids or your wife or your family. One of the things I've tried to train myself to do, particularly over the last few years, is stop and take note and celebrate with the people around you when you reach a milestone. Like when I got my PhD, I'd been dedicating like every hour for four years to this thing. I went through graduation. All right, on to the next thing. You just have to stop, take stock of where you're at, and make sure you're really stopping to smell the roses. That's like a recurring mistake I've made throughout my life and one I'm working to fix. All right, Stephen, last one. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? The category of people that have had the biggest impact are people who've given me an opportunity, which is usually people who've hired me or have worked with me. To name some people, Craig Shapiro at Collaborative Fund is the one that first gave me an opportunity to be an investor in this space. I'm very grateful to him. Tony Cartledge, who hired me at the winery as the CFO many, many years ago. When I was in my 20s, I had no business being a CFO, and he really gave me an opportunity. It was very important. Derek Schloss, my partner, I've learned so much from him. He's just had an enormous impact on my professional development. Jonathan Evans, who we started Skyward together as a co-founder, also a former student of mine. Those are the people who've given me opportunity. In time into my development and my success, those are the people I'm really, really grateful to. Stephen, thanks so much for this tour of the crypto world and for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.